0: Crazy times we continue to live in, huh? I didn't watch the news all day. Thankfully, I got to be in my Bible instead preparing for this evening, but people text me and tell me what's going on uh, on the news and kind of sad you know, to to recognize some of the realities. But, but I'll tell you something. I, I want to tell you something that's more sad and that I think as the church and the body of Christ, we need to be more concerned about and to be praying about. I'm not shocked when people in the world uh, act like worldly people. Uh, but if you have not seen yet, and there's a YouTube video, you can see the clip of it. Um, recently, it was just a few days ago in the, um, I believe it was the opening of the, congress session a lot of times they'll allow uh, a chaplain or a pastor at times to open in prayer Uh, and a i believe it was and forgive me if i'm wrong on the exact facts on it i believe it was a methodist uh, minister who uh, opened in prayer and then as the prayer was being closed out uh, prayed in the name of uh, a hindu god and then he said the monotheistic god that is known by many different names uh by which we may choose to call him. And then at the end of the prayer said, amen, and a woman. Literally said that, amen. And then afterwards said, and a woman, because he wanted to be sensitive to everything being so gender offensive now, that now, even though just because the word amen has the word men in it, there's no etymological connection in the what the word amen means. The word amen simply means so be it or amen from the... So it's nothing other than a term that means let it be so, but because it has the word men in the word amen in the spelling, this individual felt the need to add at the end of the prayer and a woman. Uh, I mean, where are we headed? And listen, this is supposed to be somebody who's a representative of the body of Christ. This is a minister uh, doing this kind of stuff. That's, to me, more sad and more concerning than what people in just the society in general in the world are. I mean, that's just, just so unfortunate and just shows you all the more why it is so essential that we continue to be the church and function as the body of Christ should, and why it's important that we continue to keep doing what we're doing, which is staying in the word of God and being biblically sound and adhering to and learning and knowing the Scriptures, so that we can continue to be the salt and the light that we're supposed to be. Uh, Because the world's just going to get darker. Our world is scheduled for darkness. So that's really, though it's disappointing, it's really not something that's shocking for us, right? I mean, the Bible tells us in the last days, it doesn't say wonderful times will come, right? (laughs) In the last days, it says perilous times will come. So though no generation wants it, some generation is scheduled for everything to completely deteriorate and fall apart. We may just be the generation chosen for that and and that hastens the coming of the Lord. So uh the generation that has to endure it to some degree also gets the benefit of being the generation that gets the the snatching away or the rapture experience. So uh, uh th- there's a a bit of a trade-off in that, but you know that we would uh, continue to keep doing what we're doing is boy just so essential that the body of Christ be healthy because if the people of God begin to start unraveling and shifting further away and being conformed to the pattern of this world, boy, we're, we're really, really going to be uh, in a very scary place. So, you know, I'm so thankful to be able to be a part of a church and a movement of churches um, that so certainly we're not perfect, but I believe are keeping the main things, the main things and You know, God help us uh, and that we would continue to recognize the value of that and our importance and how essential we really, really are. One of the things I sent back to somebody that sent me a text today, I said, just another reminder that the church is absolutely essential to continue to be salt and light and be representatives of the truth and just help people have some hope and clarity and sanity uh, as humanity is just kind of unraveling at the seams in a lot of different ways. Uh, that we see kind of going on right now. So anyway, let's pray and ask God to speak to us. Father, thank you this evening for uh, the opportunity to be able to assemble together and Lord, to be able to lift our voices, to sing to you, to be able to have just a conscious awareness of your reality lord and your presence and to be able to experience the ministry of your spirit in such a dry and and weary world right now lord we thank you that you are like an oasis lord and that we can come into this place and disconnect from the world for a little bit and and be kind of recharged inwardly by the power and the ministry of your spirit and so we just ask that you'd help us now lord as we've come here tonight we pray you'd strengthen us physically after a a lengthy day whatever it may have been that you would just help us to be alert mentally and that spiritually we'd be sensitive to what your holy spirit is trying to say to us as we continue to journey through the word of god together as a church family so please speak to us lord by the ministry of your spirit tonight and we ask this expectantly together in jesus name and everyone said amen amen All right, as we continue in our study in the book of Psalms together, we pick up in Psalm chapter 9 this evening. So if you haven't turned there yet, if you'll turn with me to Psalm 9. And in Psalm 9, we get another Psalm uh, written by David as the human author, at least as the Spirit of the Lord was uh, speaking Uh, through David as he was communicating things here, uh, appending these things, which again is, remember, not only poetry, but also poetry, it seems, that was often set to music, Uh, exactly what the tune and the melody is from time to time. We don't know that, but certainly the book of Psalms is sort of like a Jewish uh, hymnal in a lot of ways. And here we find David in Psalm 9, it seems, worshiping God, despite very wicked and dark times in the culture. Now, again, I realize we can't probably relate to that right now, but David could in his day. And, and that's what David was experiencing. Things weren't the greatest circumstantially for him personally. They weren't the greatest uh, at the time at the state of the nation of Israel, as Saul was unraveling and David was dealing with difficulties. Again, so the society in David's day was Uh, wicked morally things were going downhill and david writes this psalm and you see that he still worships god and really just wants to turn the whole matter over to god and keep his focus on the lord in the midst of these very dark and wicked times so uh, the little statement we have above the psalm where it begins to the chief musician to the tune of death of the son. Now, I don't know what that is. But that sounds pretty morbid just in the description of it. Some think that could be a reference uh, to uh, the death of one of David's sons of Absalom. We do know that David's son Absalom uh, died. And so it could be that this to some degree had some connection to that. We, we can't be certain. We don't have a, enough evidence to validate that. Uh, It could just be that that was the general tone of the music, kind of the melody in the way that the uh, song was uh, kind of put forth to music when it was given to the chief musician. Uh, But notice David begins with a number of I will statements in verses one and two, showing that he made these conscious decisions in his life. God has given us a free will which means that we are voluntary creatures who have the ability to make decisions what we choose to do and what we don't choose to do, that we have that freedom to make those personal determinations. And so David says, despite these things going on, I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart, and I will tell of all your marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in you, and I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Now notice, you can tell David's not saying these in things in great times, because look at just the next few verses. He says, when my enemies turn back, they shall fall and perish, for you've maintained my right and my cause. He says, verse 6, O oh, enemy, destructions are finished forever. Uh, again, uh, this is the idea here. David's dealing with enemies, he's dealing with difficulties, He's gonna talk about how God needs to deal with and judge the wicked actions of mankind and what they were doing. But again, in the midst of those things, how does David process all this? He doesn't process it by overly focusing too much, by getting bogged down looking at all the wickedness, and being frustrated by all the rotten things that were happening in the culture and society, or even being overly frustrated and being embittered about the things that were being done to him that were hurtful or that were wrong, whether by Saul or other detractors coming against him. Uh, David made a conscious decision to keep a proper focus in the midst of those things and to keep his eyes on the Lord. And I'll tell you, that's really an important thing, but it is also really a conscious decision. Because, you know, like that one song that we sing, my heart deceives me, my feelings lie, they're always drifting like an ocean tide, Uh, you know, again, there's this constant struggle for all of us as people where our thoughts want to take us down certain roads our feelings, our moods want to kind of lead us in certain directions when we see things happening around us and in front of us or on the news. Or, you know, again, it, it's easy to feel inclined to start to think and feel certain ways. And we have to, as the Proverbs say, direct our hearts, not allow our hearts to direct us. If we let our hearts direct us, the Bible says what in Jeremiah, that our heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Uh, but we need to direct our hearts. Proverbs 4 says to keep our hearts with all diligence. And the important thing is not to let our heart drive us, but that we would make conscious choices of the will to direct our hearts, to direct our minds in the right way. And a real key for that, for the child of God, is to put our focus on the Lord, to consciously do that. Again, David says, I will, I will, I will. Doesn't mean he always felt like it, I'm certain he didn't. I mean, he's a human being, just like you and I. Uh, It doesn't mean he always naturally was inclined to that, but he said, I will do this. I'm gonna make a conscious decision. He says, I will praise you. He says, verse one, oh Lord. Notice he says of his praise of the Lord, of his worship. He says, I will praise and worship the Lord with my whole heart. The idea there is the exact opposite of what we may say being half-hearted. You know, being a kind of apathetic or, or just kind of going through the motions, but our hearts, we say, hey, your heart's not really in it, right? I mean, we understand that in human relationships. You know, it could be in a, in a marital relationship or in somebody we're talking to about the way we see they're doing something. We say, I, I know that you're, you're going through the motions or, I, or you say those things, but I can tell your heart's not really in it. I could tell your heart's not really behind it. Well, the Bible even cautions us, Jesus himself even pulls from Isaiah and uses as a rebuke where God says to us you know, that we can worship him with our lips, but our hearts can be far from him. And God says, these people worship me in vain. The idea is actually, imagine that, that God says that there is an actual form of worship that is actually vain. The idea is empty or, or profitless. And and the reason I think that is because we're not worshiping from time to time with our, as David says here, our whole heart, with our whole heart being in it. I mean, I know that I can as well as you can when you become familiar with the Christian songs, right? You could just, you could stand in church and kind of just, you kind of sing the words and you just ramble off the sentences, but yet your heart can be in a totally different place or your mind's completely somewhere else. And the reality is, is is God wants our full passion and wants us to engage and he wants us to worship with our whole heart. And that when we give our worship to the Lord, when we praise the Lord through song or through prayer, that our heart would really be in it. And I don't know about you, but I tell you this, I know for myself personally, not only do I know that pleases God more and is God worthy of that and does that bless God more, but I get more blessed when I worship the Lord with my whole heart and I really genuinely engage as compared to if I allow myself to kind of disconnect a little bit, if you know what I mean. But, but when you set aside your inhibitions of, you know, well, I don't want to, people think I sing bad or I'm embarrassed or I don't want to lift my hands if people think I'm a weirdo. Or when you set all that aside and you just in full passion, worship the Lord with your whole heart, it's amazing how much more you begin to really experience the presence of the Lord and just the power and ministry of his spirit. Because when we draw near to God, the Bible says he draws near to us. And so there's that reciprocal benefit. So David, I love, he says, I make a decision to praise the Lord, not just think about things that are negative. And he says, and when I make that decision to praise the Lord, he says, I'm going to do it with my whole heart. And he says, and when I talk about things, he says, I'm going to tell of all your marvelous works. Again, I will, because there's probably lots of things David could have talked about. He could have talked about the things that everybody else in Israel was talking about, right? Everybody else in Israel, oh, that's Saul. You know what Saul's doing now? Now look what, what the way the kingdom's going. And, and David says, you know what? I'm going to determine, I will tell God, he says, of all your marvelous works. I'm going to talk about God, he says. I'm going to look for ways to tell people about how God's worked in my life and, and to declare the works of God to others. What a you know, great conversational shift that is if, if more of us would spend time consciously trying to tell people about the marvelous works of God and just the things that God's done, telling people about what Jesus has done rather than telling people about, you know, other things that we're disgruntled about or that are bothering us and that everybody else in the, you know, the community is always conversating about. And David says, verse two, and I will be glad and rejoice. And that's hard when you're in wicked times, right? But he says, I will be glad And I will rejoice. Sounds like that's a choice to a degree, right? Not to be depressed from time to time, not to be discouraged, not to be filled with anxiety. I will be glad. I will rejoice. There's only one way you can do that. He says in you. Again, if you're rejoicing in the Lord, you can always have something to be glad about. Because there's always something good about God to rejoice in to be able to celebrate. That's the word rejoice means. It means to celebrate. And we can always celebrate something good about who God is or what God's doing or even just celebrate, if nothing else, Lord, thank you so much that I'm not stuck here forever. Lord, I thank you so much that though I am here now and this is earth and I got to journey my way through this earth while I'm on my path here. But Lord, I thank you so much that I rejoice in knowing that one day I'm going to be set free from all this. And for all of eternity, Lord, I'm gonna be in eternal bliss where things are righteous and it's the absence of sin and problems and no more sickness and hardship and pain and death and sorrow. And to be able to just rejoice in that brings a, a degree of gladness. We can just be glad and celebrate that. You know, what a treasure. People in the world don't have that privilege. Do you know how really privileged we really are as God's people to have that opportunity? No wonder so many people, honestly, genuinely are so depressed and so discouraged and so downcast i mean when you don't have anything to be glad about anything to rejoice in and life's hard just generally but then when you add on to it particularly difficult times boy it's such a, a wonderful thing to be able to have that privilege and that awareness that hey i can rejoice in god and be glad about the things of god and how he express that outwardly verse two he says i will sing praise to your name, o Most High. Again, David realized that one of the ways that God has asked us in his word to express worship towards him, it's not the only way we exercise worship because you can sing songs and not be worshiping God. There are many different ways we can express worship to God. The Bible says to obey is better than the sacrifice. Obedience to God is worship to God. The first time the word worship even shows up in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 22, And Abraham's not singing praise songs. He's not singing hymns. He's surrendering his will to sacrifice his one and only son and give up the most precious thing in his life, which was his promise of a a future and inheritance with a son. And he's surrendering everything over to God. That's the true essence of what worship is. But one of the ways that God's asked us to worship him is through singing and and expressing praise to him. So if we genuinely love God and we want to give him praise and we want to honor him and give him the glory that he's due, one of the ways God has asked us to do that is by singing through music and expressing through song. So David says, I will sing praise to your name. Again, it's a choice. Well, I don't like to sing. Who cares? God likes when you sing, (laughs) So David says, I will sing. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High, because you are worthy and deserving of such. David then says, verse three, and when my enemies then turn back, they shall fall and perish at your presence. It's almost like David recognizes, you know, Lord, when I draw near to you and I start rejoicing in you and praising you, it's amazing how that kind of drives away the presence of, of my enemies and you know in a spiritual sense i sometimes think that's true i don't think there's anything the enemy despises more you know than when we just begin to praise and worship and rejoice in the lord he says my enemies will be turned back for you he says verse four lord have maintained my right and my cause you sat on the throne judging in righteousness and you have rebuked the nations and david had seen that many times as Military campaigns would take place. Lord, you have destroyed the wicked and you have blotted out their name forever and ever. O oh, enemy, he says, destructions are finished forever and you have destroyed cities, even their memory has perished. So he speaks about how God maintaining the right and cause. Of his people, of the nation of Israel, as they would engage in battles that at times were military campaigns that God himself was directing the nation to engage in. We see this in the days of Joshua and through the days of David as well, that God at times would direct them in their battles and enemies would come against them. And at times it would be self-defense. Other times they were offensive conflicts, but how on different occasions, God would give them victory when they engaged in the Lord's battles. And even to the point where at times God would completely not only rebuke, but destroy and diminish enemies completely says you have destroyed their cities and even their memory has perished. And again, if you look even just geographically at a map of what was, you know, ancient Israel and some of the people groups, right, that at times used to be enemies of Israel, they don't exist anymore. You know, there, there are no Moabites anymore, right? They, they don't exist anymore. Why? Because God dealt with those enemies and completely eradicated them by giving victory as people when they were fighting their battles, and David realized this that there was no enemy that, no matter how strong or how constant or how continuous it brought battles and problems that God, if he was in it, could not completely eradicate and remove from becoming a problem for them and you know that 's a great encouragement to us because we may not be fighting enemies you know, in a national or you know, geographic conflict in our lives, but we certainly have spiritual enemies that we battle from time to time. Enemies of our, you know, flesh, uh, you know, sinful temptations, things that kind of want to attack our spiritual lives and draw us down and hurt us and cause difficulty. And the wonderful thing is, is the Lord is still in the business of giving his people victory. You know, I love what Paul proclaims in First Corinthians chapter 15 at the end of it. He says, thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And there are enemies in my life. There are enemies in your life from time to time, things that want to come against us. But the wonderful thing is, is that though we may not be able to conquer those enemies on our own, the Lord can give us victory supernaturally by the power of his spirit. He can help us become conquerors over those things and even remove enemies. We may think, oh, this is always going to be a battle. Right. And sometimes we almost settle into that. Sometimes as a Christian, we almost feel like, well, I guess I guess this is always just going to be a battle for me. You know, I, I hear conversations like this from time to time, I'll talk, about, it. I guess I'm just always, you know, I guess I'm always going to just struggle with substance abuse or I guess I'm just always going to struggle with you know, pornography or I guess I'm just always going str- no, to. I don't think that you should succumb to that in doubt. What I read, Jesus Christ died on the cross to give victory, and if the Son sets us free, we can be free indeed. And it may be a constant and a continual enemy, but it doesn't mean it's an enemy that has to be something that cannot be conquered by the Lord's power. The Lord's in the business of giving us deliverance, and he gave them deliverance, and I believe wants to give much the same to us. So he says, Lord, you've dealt with our enemies, verse 7, but the Lord, he says, shall endure... Forever. Again, enemies come and enemies go, but God endures forever in his strength and his permanence. He says he has prepared his throne for judgment and he shall judge the world in righteousness and he shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. So again, the Bible pictures that one day God will justly judge the earth. That God is a judge. Often we want to think about God and his love and his goodness and his mercy and his kindness. But we need to realize uh, that God's goodness and love and mercy and patience and kindness isn't something that interrupts the fact that God is just and God is holy. And if God is going to be good and just, then he needs to exercise justice against what's wrong and what's evil, and one day God uh, for, you know, will ultimately judge all of humanity, but there are times when God must and God should bring his judgment, and David recognized that. He says, Lord, you have prepared your throne for judgment when it's necessary, and one day he says you are going to judge the world, all of humanity, in righteousness and minister your judgment among the people. He says, verse 9, and the Lord will also be a refuge for the oppressed. Again, the oppressed are those who are being taken advantage of, those who are being, you know, kind of controlled in an unfair way and manipulated. And he says, for those who are experiencing that, being held back, oppressed, being kind of manipulated, he says, Lord, for them, you become a refuge in times Of their trouble. And again, the word refuge speaks simply of just being a safe place of preservation. A refuge is is somewhere where you can find shelter from the storm, somewhere where you're safe and it's restful. And, And the Bible pictures God in this way for us many times that God is our refuge. The Bible says he's a refuge, a strength, an ever-present help in time of trouble. And how wonderful that when things are coming against us, when we're under pressures, when we're trying to be oppressed by certain things, when the devil's attacking us, whatever it may be, that we can go to the Lord and he becomes our refuge. And he can be our refuge in times of trouble and just give us a, a safe spot, a restful shelter temporarily from the pressures of oppression coming against our lives from time to time. He says, verse 10, and those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, he says, have not forsaken those who seek you. So just a a great statement there, verse 10. Speaking of relationship with God, those who know your name, that speaks of those in relationship with God, they know God personally. And, And what's an indication when someone knows God, they put their trust in the Lord. Those who know the Lord put their trust in the Lord. Those two go hand in hand. In fact, oftentimes the one is reflective of the other. If you genuinely know the Lord, then your trust and your faith should be in the Lord. That's where you rely upon. That's where your dependence is. Those who know the Lord put their trust in him. And why? Because we know he's faithful, right? He says here, for you, Lord, you have not forsaken those who seek you. And we have experienced that in our lives from time to time that when we seek sought the Lord for something and we trusted him, Lord, I don't know what to do in the situation, but I'm seeking you for help. I'm seeking you for guidance and and we're trusting that he's going to come through. And then we see him come through. And again and again, we rejoice, Lord, you, yeah, you didn't abandon me. You didn't forsake me. You came through. But see, it's that testimony of God's faithfulness of knowing him and what he's like and trusting him and having seen him come through before, that should be our confidence that then when the next situation arises, because it always does, right? The next trial, the next challenge, the next threat, the next circumstance, the next difficulty or thing that makes us fearful or concerned and we're worried what's gonna go on, that's what should make us again say, Lord, I know you, so I'm gonna trust you because Lord, I've learned this, that those who seek you, you never forsake them. And you know, that may be where you're at this evening. Perhaps you are in the midst of something. Look, remember the Lord has not forsaken and he will not forsake those who seek him. You trust the Lord, you seek the Lord and you know that he is not gonna forsake you. He will be with you. He's never gonna leave you or forsake you. The Bible promises that very thing. I can't promise you that others won't. I wish I could stand before you and tell you that no other person in your life may never forsake you because the reality is is they may have already and they may they're human and and it's a difficult thing to swallow but again what a wonderful thing to know that the psalmist declares later on we're going to see he says even if my mother and my father forsake me the lord will take care of me again the idea there is to be very picturesque that it sounds difficult what natural good healthy mother or father would like forsake and abandon their children i realize that there are sadly some who do that but the idea there's in the ideal right healthy perspective the a father or mother would do almost anything for their child right i mean you think of what fathers and mothers at times endure from their children that get rebellious and go crazy and they still don't forsake their kids right And that's the idea. Even if my father and mother, the most least likely individuals forsake me, I know the Lord will take care of me. The Lord won't forsake me. You know, that should give you great confidence in your life. That gives you a sense of security as a person that even if you feel forsaken or you feel others may forsake you, you can know if you keep seeking the Lord, he will never leave you or forsake you. And I think that's why David says in light of these things, verse 11, notice now he shifts his instruction to others. He says, therefore, sing praises to the lord so david said earlier i will sing praise to your name now he's telling others look he said join me in this worship sing praises to the lord who dwells in zion and again in jerusalem and zion and in the days of the tabernacle and the temple the the presence of the lord was there in the midst of the holy of holies there In Zion, but the wonderful thing is one day, literally, the Bible tells us, Zechariah 14, Isaiah 2, other places, that when Jesus returns, he's literally, again, the presence of the Lord going to set up his throne in Jerusalem. And in some ways, prophetically, uh, there will be those singing praise to the Lord who will literally be dwelling once again, perhaps sooner than we expect, that we'll actually be singing to the Lord directly who's dwelling and ruling and reigning there in jerusalem in the very very near future he says declare his deeds among the people so again david said i will tell of your marvelous works verse one now he's saying to others hey join me join me in worship sing with me and he says you declare his deeds you tell people too. tell people what god's done in your life when he avenges blood he remembers them and he does not forget the cry of the humble he always takes care of those who are being hurt and wounded. He says verse 13 have mercy on me o lord consider my trouble from those who hate me. You who lift me up from the gates of death. Now you're you're pretty low when you're in the gates of death. Uh, again whether David's meaning that literally because David's life remember truly was being hunted down So in a sense, David knew what it literally meant. We may feel like, I mean, I just I am so overwhelmed. I literally feel like this trial is killing me, right? I mean, David literally was eluding people who were actually trying to kill him, literally. There were people actually trying to murder David. You imagine the degree of stress and the reality of that someone literally hunting you around as you're running through the Judean wilderness and people are literally trying to put you to death. David literally was experiencing it. Remember at one time, David said, there's but a step between me and death. That literally was like every step he was taking. There was the risk that someone was gonna take his life. And imagine the stress and the difficulty that created for him in his life. But again, he's describing just the difficulty and feeling very low. But he says, Lord, you are able to consider my trouble from those who hate me. You're able to lift me up from the doldrums of being down and feeling like I'm in the gates of death to spare me. And why? Why does he want God to spare him? He says, verse 14, Lord, spare my life that I may tell of all your praise. In the gates of the daughter of Zion, I will rejoice in your salvation, your deliverance. Lord, save me from death so that I can declare the glory of your awesome salvation. Isn't that exactly really what the Lord does spiritually in all of our lives? We are all facing the gates of death because the Bible tells us the wages of our sin is what? Death. We are, in a sense, headed through the gateway of death in our sin and deserve judgment and death for our sin, but yet the Lord in his love, intervenes by sending Jesus for us, and Jesus comes and accomplishes what he does on the cross and his resurrection for us so that he might provide for us salvation and to deliver us from death unto eternal life. And in the same way, you know, we would say to the Lord, Lord, save me that I may tell of all your praise and that I can rejoice in your salvation, Lord, your spiritual salvation. You've spared me from death and hell and given me eternal life. And again, that should be something that motivates us to want to tell people when when we continue to keep conscious of what the Lord's really done for us. That's why David no doubt declared in Psalm 51, Lord, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Because when you have that awareness and you live with it and kind of kind of wears off from time to time, you want to tell people about it. You want to tell people what the Lord has done in saving you because you're just excited and rejoicing in your salvation. That's what's so special about brand new believers because they are just so excited that the Lord saved them that they just want to tell people. And they're excited about it. And there's something about that becomes a very powerful testimony. He says, verse 15, the nations have sunk down in a pit, which they made. In the net, which they hid, their own foot is caught. So notice there is no success in doing what's evil or wrong. It's, it's just a, a, a self-destructive path. The nations sunk down in the pit, which they've made. They get caught in their own net and trap. And he says, the Lord is known by the judgment he executes. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. Meditation, Selah. In other words, think about that. There's nothing successful that ever comes from doing what is wrong whether personally or even says nationally because in verse 15 and 16 he describes how nations literally ruin themselves that's what he's describing in verse 15 and 16 a nation sinking down in their own pit which they've made and the wicked people of the nation becoming snared in the work of their own wicked hands doing things wrong and sinful and immoral and and, and this is true from time to time God raises up nations, and then there are times when God judges, and he removes, and he gets rid of nations. And what's very interesting is to see, again, particularly if you think of even, for example, the Roman Empire, not even every time does a nation get conquered militarily. The Roman Empire didn't get conquered and overcome militarily like other nations did. The Roman Empire, the iron fist of the Roman Empire, fell apart internally because of its own wickedness as a nation and the things that it was doing that were filthy and immoral, and all of the corruption inwardly of the moral fiberwork of the Roman Empire is what led to it sinking down into its own collapse. It collapsed from within. And at time to time, this is what will happen. A nation who doesn't reverence God. A nation, the Bible says, right, that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach, a shame to any people. And when a nation does not honor God and wants nothing to do with God and wants to live in its own corrupt and, again, just defiled and and sinful ways, at times it just leads to its own moral downslide. And it just begins to disintegrate from within. He says, any nation, David had even seen his time, can sink down into their own pit and become snared in their own sinful choices. He says, the wicked, verse 17, shall be turned into hell. And all, notice, there it is, as I just said, all the nations that what? Forget God, that forget God. Now keep in mind, when the Bible says forget God, it's not saying like that a nation at one time kind of starts to go, wasn't there someone that we used to, kind of honor who was that again i mean can you i just i can't that's not the idea of when the bible says to forget god you you can't forget god (laughs) that is not a lapse in memory the idea there is to choose not to remember to choose when the bible says that god forgets our sins god knows everything right he's all-knowing When the Bible says that God forgets our sins, the idea is that God chooses to no longer remember our sinful things and the things that we've done. He chooses to forget about them. It's not that he can't remember them. So when the Bible says here, the nation that forgets God, the idea is the nation that sets God aside and says, we don't want to remember anymore. We don't want to think about anymore the existence of God. We want to put God behind our back. And we just, you know, we don't even want to think about who he is or what he wants. We just want to do our own thing. We want to rule over ourselves. And we've learned from the Garden of Eden, the biggest problem with humanity is we don't know how to rule our own lives. From Adam and Eve, humanity has never been able to rule themselves. And when we step out from under the governance of God, we just set ourselves up for tremendous pain and moral failure. So the nation that forgets God, very stern warning, he says, that naked nation, he says, so ultimately that wicked nation be turned to to hell. Literally, the idea is like conditionally. That's what things literally become like to the nation that forgets God. And look at many godless nations through history and take notice of what happens conditionally. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. Again, indications of forgetting God. I'm not caring anymore about those in genuine need. Arise, O Lord, he says, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged in your sight. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. In other words, David's asking God to put people who are rebellious into their place. He's saying, Lord, please, please don't let men prevail in their wicked intentions, in their self-serving pursuits, the things that they are doing that are directly opposed to what would be best for us as a people. He's saying, please, Lord, don't let wicked men prevail. Instead, he says, Lord, let people, let nations know that they are but men. The idea is, is that we are weak and frail people and that we need God's help in our lives because that's crucial to our existence. Again, say says, or, or think that through, think over that reality. Chapter 10 or Psalm 10, he says, why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? So notice here, David, he describes feeling distant from God. Why do you stand far off? Now, was God far off? Of course not. What did David say in the prior Psalm? God, you don't forsake people. But David felt like that God had forsaken him. So he's describing here an experience. His perception of God's presence wasn't as clear And he felt like God had abandoned him. He felt like God had become distant and he didn't sense God's presence as if God was sort of hiding rather than being actively involved in his life. And again, don't you appreciate David's honesty? Because from time to time we can feel like that. Lord, where are you? Lord, I feel like you're not involved. I feel like you're not aware of what's going on in my life. Lord, I feel like like you've abandoned me. But again, notice the keys, I feel like. It seems like, Lord, you've abandoned me. It's a perception, it's a feeling. And sometimes we lose sense of the presence of God. It doesn't mean that God has abandoned us, but sometimes we struggle with that reality. And again, what's David doing? He's just praying sincerely. He's being honest before God with how he feels. And I think it's healthy to just you know communicate openly and honestly with the Lord. It's the best way to process things from time to time. He says, verse two, describing his struggle He says, the wicked in his pride, and that's always the the birthplace of wickedness, pride. Pride is the mother of all sins. The wicked in his pride persecutes, mistreats, hurts the poor. Let them be caught, he says, in the plots which they have devised. In other words, God, let them reap the very things that they're sowing harmfully against others. For the wicked, he says, verse three, boasts of his heart's desire. He blesses the greedy, and renounces the Lord, so he celebrates and helps those who do what are greedy and selfish, and he renounces and casts aside the Lord. The wicked, he says, in his proud countenance, does not seek God, and God is in none of his thoughts. You know, what a, a interesting classification there of what it means to live a wicked and a proud life to not only not seek God, but he says literally God is in none of his thoughts. The idea that he doesn't even take into consideration the reality of God, what pleases God, just again, completely pushing the idea of God out of one's thoughts uh, and just continuing to be a self-seeking person. Again, the, the characterizing mark of a proud and a wicked life. He says, verse five, notice, however, his ways are always prospering. Your judgments are far above, out of his sight. As for all his enemies, he sneers at them. This is the, the wicked person. He has said in his heart, boastfully, notice a false sense of security. I shall not be moved. I shall never be in adversity. And again, that's a very typical symptomatic effect of pride of thinking you're way more secure than you really are. Nobody can harm me. No, you know, I, I'm fine. I'm stable. Everything has been the way it's been. I'm, nothing's ever going to happen. I don't see any, look, I've been doing what's wrong for 10 years. Nothing's ever gone wrong yet. I've never had anything really go bad. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and depression is under his tongue trouble and iniquity he sits in the lurking places of the villages in secret places he murders the innocent his eyes are secretly fixed on the helpless he lies in wait secretly as a lion in his den again David's picturing him like a ferocious lion who just attacks his prey he lies in wait to catch the poor he catches the poor when he draws them into his net He crouches and he lies low that the helpless may fall by his strength. So again, characterizing the wicked, characterizing the one in pride. And and what does he do? He takes advantage of vulnerable people. This is what David's describing here. He says in verse eight, he in the secret places, he murders the innocent. Murdering the innocent, taking innocent life, putting to death, those who are innocent. Again, we sadly do that in many ways in our own country. We put to death innocent lives. His eyes secretly fix, notice, on the helpless. Who are the helpless? People who are weak. People who are vulnerable. People who don't have the ability to defend themselves or, or, or stand their ground. And again, this is what wicked people do. Not only are they violent and evil, but they tend to prey upon people who are helpless. This is what wicked people do. They prey upon those who are vulnerable and helpless. They manipulate their situation. They see somebody who's vulnerable. They see someone who's more weak and someone who they can take advantage of more easily, and they fix their eyes upon such people and in secret ways. They try and take advantage of those kind of people. And again, this is something that greatly, greatly displeases the Lord, he says, that the helpless would fall by what the person is doing. And yet the wicked person, verse 11, what does he say boastfully? He has said in his heart, God has forgotten. He hides his face. He will never see. In other words, what's the deception of the proud, wicked person? He thinks that God's not aware. God's not aware. I mean, you say, this, but I don't see anything happening. I've been doing this for Weeks, I've been doing this for months. I've been doing this for years. It seems like, maybe your God's forgotten. I don't see anything going wrong. It seems that everything's okay. And the idea is in his mind, he begins to convince himself if there is some God, that God must be okay with what he's doing because he doesn't see anything happening because God's patient forbearance hasn't brought strong judgment against his life. He's living in the deception that his wickedness is somehow approved or Okay. So David, after talking of these things, verse 12, he cries out. Now he says, arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand, he says. Do not forget the humble. Why did the wicked renounce God? He has said in his heart, you will not require an account. So he says, God, arise. The word arise, O Lord, literally means God, take action. Take action. Again, I, I like to hear David's frustrated with what the wicked are doing. He sees the wicked hurting people, deceiving people, manipulating, taking advantage in wicked ways of people, stealing and ripping people off. And what does David do? He prays. Come on, David. That's when you're supposed to protest. What does David do? Under the Spirit of God's inspiration, he says, What we need to do is pray. God, intervene. God, arise, O Lord. Lift up your hand. God, we don't need to get our hands involved. God, we need your sovereign, powerful, mighty, righteous hand from heaven to come down from heaven, rend the heavens, God, and intervene. Do something miraculous. Do something supernatural. He says, arise, O God. Take action. Get involved. Again, I, I love the example of David. He, I mean, again, keep in mind, <laughs> David was a warrior. David was one of these guys. I mean, he's like an Old Testament Rambo. He would rip your head off. I mean, that was who David was. David was not no pushover. Again, we, remember, I mean, David was a mighty warrior of God. He had a tender heart for the Lord, but this guy was a battle-hardened, tough man. I mean, he fought lions, literal lions and bear out in the midst of protecting his sheep. And then on the battlefield, I mean, this guy was a stellar warrior. And what's David doing? He's saying, I got to pray. I got to because the battle belongs to the Lord, right? That was David's sentiments. The battle belongs to the Lord. Arise, oh Lord. He's asking for God to intervene. He says, verse 14, God, he says that you will not require an account, but you, he says, you have seen, Lord, you observe trouble and grief. Aren't you thankful for that? God observes trouble. God sees when people are troubling others, when people are bringing trouble upon others. God sees your trouble and God observes your grief and the hardship and the pain in your heart if you're grieving. He says, you observe these things, Lord, and you repay it by your hand. The helpless commits himself to you, and you are the helper of the fatherless. Again, the Bible does not teach God helps those who help themselves. (laughs) That's not in the Bible. The Bible says God doesn't help those who help themselves. The Bible says God helps the helpless who realizes, God, I am helpless. I'm helpless in this situation. So what does the helpless do? The fatherless, the helpless commits himself to God. God, we're helpless. We need your help, God. You're the helper of the fatherless, of the weak. Gets verse 15. Break the arm of the wicked and the evil man, seek out his wickedness until you find none. Again, you can tell David is who he is still. I mean, even just the way that this guy prays. In prior psalms he's saying, "God, break their teeth, bust their jaw." Now he says, "God, just break their arm." <laughs> I can't break their arm because that would be wrong. But you can break their arm. You're God. Break their arm, God. Don't let them stiff arm you. They're just a puny man, David says. Break the arm of the wicked and the evil man. The Lord, he says, again, what does David go back to? The the, the focus of the reality. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations have perished out of his land. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble, you will prepare their heart. You will cause your ear to hear, notice, to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed that the man of earth may oppress no more. God, if you get involved, things can begin to change. God, you can come to our defense. But David commits it to God and he lets God determine what to do with it. He just lays it out before God. He doesn't try and fix the situation himself. He just says, Lord, ultimately, you're the one who's on the throne. And Lord, you're going to be king, he says, forever and ever. It doesn't matter what man does or what man doesn't do or who thinks they're in charge. He says, Lord, the nations are going to perish out of your land. And many nations that thought they would overrun Israel forever have perished and are no longer in the land of Israel. God drove them out because God's ultimately in charge. And he says, Lord, You hear the desire of the humble. And I love that. God doesn't just hear our prayers. He even hears our desires, even our desires. Because sometimes, right, you have desires and things in your heart and you can't even articulate them in words, right? You've ever been in that place before where you're struggling with something or you wanna talk to God about something and you can't even just put together the right words. Well, God doesn't just hear your words, He even just sees and hears and is aware of your desires, the things that you want to pray, you want to ask, but you, in a groan, can't even get them out. God sees that. God's intimately aware of that. And he cares and has the power to work in those situations. You know, I love that statement there in verse 17, when he says, Lord, you will cause your ear to hear and you prepare their heart. I've always loved that little statement there. You will prepare their heart because God can work in the heart of a person. God can, God can either overrun a person or God can transform a person by preparing their heart for change. Now, there have been numerous times where I've come back to that little statement there, verse 17, in regards to a situation realizing, you know, maybe somebody's got a hard heart or a stubborn heart, or you need to talk to them about something that's going on in their heart or life. And, and, and I come back to that, Lord, you can prepare their heart. Lord, you prepare people's hearts. And what a great thing for us to remember. Look, if God is king forever and ever and God can conquer nations, God can conquer and change a person's heart. And sometimes we need to pray, Lord, prepare their heart. Please, Lord, prepare their heart. Do what it takes to soften their heart, dethrone their pride, and Lord, prepare their heart that they would be receptive.